right. Well, welcome back to a long-awaited uh, episode of Vikingology Podcast, right, CJ? We haven't been together for a while. Probably, what, a, a month or something at least? Six weeks? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is good. Back in the saddle, right? And we're super happy to kick off the fall with somebody I've been friends with for a while. I'm so happy to welcome and talk to, and that's Dr. Ben Raffield from Uppsala University in Sweden. And you are a person that I appreciate because you're an archaeologist, but you're also somebody who really kind of has a little historian in you and also anthropologist. <laughs> and so the, the interdisciplinary approach, uh, I think uh, you embody that uh, pretty well. So um, anyway, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Uh, on this rainy afternoon and morning your time yes but we're all thankful for the rain at least where we are as we were just talking before the show a lot of wildfires in the, the west of the united states and so rain I'm, is a good i'm thing. still smoked out it's still i mean i can see about as far as my neighbor's front door and that's it <laughs> Ugh, it's so terrible but yeah Air so we have talked about quite a plethora of topics with um, our various guests, and this is something we haven't touched on too much, which is another reason I'm really happy to have you on, and that is because your focus is on conflict and military organization um, during the Viking Age or the late Iron Age in Scandinavia, and also, you know, violence and warrior culture and, and all of those um, things and how they affect the wider social, political, economic um, landscape in Scandinavia at the time. So, um, and you've got two great projects that I think are pretty cool going on right now. Lucky for you for the next three years, right? You've got one, uh, you're the principal investigator of uh, a three-year project funded by the Swedish Research Council that is looking into social inequality and marginalization um, and also structural violence in the Viking age. And then um, another project just started this year, right? Um, with what's that? Nord Nordfisk Nordforsk. Sorry, um, which is so. This is a, an organization I looked into. Right, they're um, primarily funding research on Nordic related issues. Um, and is this part of the the Norwegian government? Yeah, this is uh, yeah Norwegian funding, um, centralized funding. And uh, I, I must add, I'm just one of four partners on that project. The uh, the project's actually been led by my, my colleague Mariana Moen at Oslo. Um, so we're a little a little consortium we've developed um, across uh, Uppsala uh, National Museum in Copenhagen in Denmark, uh, University of Iceland and University of Oslo. So and is this part of the um, the the new museum that they're building about the Viking Age in uh, it's 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 based there. Let's put it oh, that. Okay. Well then it is. <laughs> <laughs> Good. All right. And then you also had a, a new book just come out. Yay. So the Vikings that you co-authored with your colleague, Neil Price. <laughs> um, no, Terry sent I, me a I, copy. I, <laughs> oh, I still haven't received my copy. So. <laughs> uh, it's I, I like it. Um, I finished it. Well, I took it with me on vacation, and uh, so it was it was fun to read. But I mean, as an educator, primarily, I mean, this is uh, I think this is good as far as being a concise, you know, type of accessible book that my students will. Um, we're really like, but um, you're a busy man, Mr. Raffield. So thank you for making time for us. Oh no, no, it's, it's a pleasure to be be here. And you know, we talked about this earlier in the year, so I'm, I'm really happy to to be here and have a chat with you guys. 
yeah and that was like i think partially even when you were in portland which was great so um all right so i'm going to just kind of kick it off and ask a question that i sometimes ask to my students um i mean obviously you full well know that for most people my students included but most people in the general population that if you say vikings you know warrior is you know kind of comes up uh first and foremost in people's minds um but i want to kind of dive into like what does warrior actually mean because i remember like five years ago or so when you know the whole burka warrior thing blew up and then charlotte your colleague was on a podcast called saga thing and I remember distinctly when I sort of, you know, my ears perking up because she said on there that even during the Viking age itself, we don't have a, an entirely good sense of like what they considered uh, to be a warrior. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, and so I'm just curious, like if you, if you had a time machine and you could go back and get plunked down into one of those, you know, encampments that you write about in England and say the year 875 and you look around you and you, how would you identify a warrior? You know, what would these people look like and what would they be acting like? Oof. Well, I mean, uh, actually I should mention this is entirely the subject of this North Force project is actually to address <laughs> these kind of central questions. Um, you know, I mean, the term warrior, it's, it's so heavily laden, you know, we, we, everyone has their own idea of what, what a warrior is, right? Um, I'm not sure often it goes beyond someone who hits other people with iron objects, you know, um, <laughs> but I, I think, I think the way, and this is the, the approach we want to take in this new project is, is these are a, a, a social group. You know, they're they're a very probably a very very niche social group, socioeconomic group uh, within society. Um, their roles. I'm saying this before we've actually even started doing any of the research. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, their roles are I think are intrinsically tied to to many different social processes. I mean, obviously they are actors of violence. Or agents of violence when they need to be, or perhaps when they want to be, um, but at the same time they're they're kind of embodying, um, you know, the kind of the the uh, the the top. I think well, perhaps somewhere near the top of this what we would call the social hierarchy, a group of you know primarily high status aristocratic peoples. Um, obviously, with you have war leaders with retinues and so on, but. They are, they, they, you know, they're, they're embodying a way of life. Um, if you say, you know, if we were to just plonk ourselves down in a Viking encampment somewhere in 9th century Europe, how you would recognize these people? Well, I mean, as I said, I guess they would be the, the kind of the primary combatants within those forces. Sure. Um, they're also likely the people leading various groups, um, taking you know, uh, roles in diplomacy and interaction with the populations around them. Um, it's it's hard to kind of, you don't want to ascribe too much prominence to them at the same point time, though, I think. And I think that's, again, what's something we want to get at is actually define this social niche that they fill. Um, I mean, you've really begun with one of the hardest questions you could have asked me, I think, in terms of, of what we wanted to talk about today. Uh, well, so just a, a quick curiosity just on what you've said so far it, 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 is it is it kind of a is it 
in the research that you're doing, are you trying to get closer to the how they may have self-identified? You know, like if you move forward a couple hundred years and you get into chivalry, for example, right? And prowess was the number one trait a knight wanted to possess. It's my ability to subdue another person in battle, right? Uh, and they identified with prowess and and so is that self-identification but during the viking age since it, it seems more ambiguous as to whether there was a warrior culture that was self-identifying as such so is it is it more of a trying to parse out like how did these people self-identify versus because we we all look back and we go well that's the warrior class right very easy <laughs> but I, is that kind of what you guys are trying to dig it dig into a little bit I think that's that's really where we're going. Yeah, I mean, um, of course, self-identification is a major aspect of this. Um, and, you know, in my past research, you know, I've, I've discussed you know, how how these various what we call warrior groups might have formed and their life course. And of course, they are they're, they're defined by specific types of material culture related to martial activity for sure. Um, and I think actually, rather than I think talking about a kind of martial society that that is what we're we're discussing here in the Viking Age. I'm not sure that there is such a defined, in a sense, warrior class as we may perhaps see with with you know, chivalry in the, in the later Middle Ages. Um, but these are these are clearly people I think who are set. They are distinct from the wider, you know, from the wider population in their own way. Um, and actually, what I think we want to try and do is identify those what the nature of those relationships is between these people and the wider population. Um, you know, as political agents, social agents, agents of violence, um, possibly with their own kind of, for want of a better word, religious um, presence. You know, uh, you know they're intrinsically tied to the elite, and therefore with kind of you know ritual practice which is entwined with the political sphere um i mean really what you can say is that they're far more complex i think the these groups than we've really given them credit for today in the literature uh and there's a lot of unpacking to do there so the um most of the scholarship at least that, that i've read i mean there's always kind of the this party line of you know not everybody and Scandinavia was a Viking, which to me would also sort of cross over into like not as you're just describing it, not everybody would be part of this this warrior class. This is like a niche kind of thing. But then there's always, you know, so the argument of like, oh, well, but, you know, these these were just farmers who like, you know, periodically picked up weapons and went off and did, you know, raiding and fought in battles and stuff like that. So are you talking about maybe looking at this as like a kind of you know, like the super Spartan, you know, kind of class of people, right? The guys who actually, that is their job mainly is just to to train and to be a warrior class or, or is it the farmers who, or is it both? I mean, maybe, I, I think actually you've hit on something important there, that there are a group of people for whom martial life, it, it, it kind of, their, their lives are filtered through a martial lens, perhaps, you know, their upbringing would involve some kind of martial component, which might be different. You know, most other settlement communities, kinship groups might not engage in that kind of lifestyle. So, you know, so regularly or readily, of course, we have, you know, when we're looking at the composition of Viking raiding groups, there may well have been part-time Vikings, you know, mm -hmm. people who opportunists who, you know, um, who are invited or coerced to 
participate in various raiding activity or overseas travel. But then there would, within those groups, be these kind of this core of individuals who, for them, it was a a profession or a vocation, as it were. It, it, it is part of how they self-identify. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, actually, with that. Okay, interesting. Um, to make a modern analogy, and this might sound funny, but I, I, it just kind of popped into my head, and I'm going to throw it out there, and you can, you're more than welcome to to tear it to pieces. But it's it's almost like, just based on what we've covered so far, it, the analogy I want to make is, you know, how we all play sports as kids now. You know, I'll I'll use tennis. I play tennis, so I'll use that as an example. And then as we get older you know, most of us aren't cut out to be pros. So we end up getting a day job. You're looking at one, uh, but some people go on to be full professionals. Right. And, and it's, so it's kind of like back then, maybe there's a martial component to being raised in, in that culture, but only a select few would actually make it to some kind of pro status. And then, and then that would become the leadership or whatnot. I mean, what do you think about that sort of idea? I think it's maybe a bit more exclusive, to be honest. I think there's, okay. it's a, uh, there are certain people and actually I think maybe something else to think about here is, is people who also have legitimate right to participate in this kind of culture and actually as part of that it's the legitimate right to control manifestations of violence or to be actors of violence um, I think those well we if, if you know based on how we, we read later medieval texts I mean these are societies that were very much you know um, bound by common understanding of, of law and i think within that actually there is probably that you know that we there are stipulations about who can enact violence who participates in that kind of that that sphere so i think it may be i think you're, you're kind of hitting at the right thing but i, I would actually say that they're they're probably an ex, a fairly exclusive group a certain number you know certain kinship groups mainly of a certain status who regularly participate in this, of course, in this, but of course, it doesn't mean that. Um, and this is one of the things, if we understand it right, about Viking Age societies. That of course, if you're not a member of this kind of almost exclusive group, you could become one. If you, uh, you know, you engage in the right activities, if you prove yourself, if you win, uh, if you win the right to, and that's again what I, when we talk about Viking raiding, these kind of part-time vikings or opportunists maybe that's what they're aspiring to to some extent you know to be able to go out with these these groups and actually uh come back home with the the wealth um the stories uh the you know the, the renown to actually advance socially and maybe enter into that kind of lifestyle um but it is very hard to it's very hard to say of course i mean we're talking entirely theoretically here mm-hmm and so you will have to excuse me. I've got a bit of a, a sore throat today, so I am on the water. Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, go for it. So it's <clears throat> the people who are um, making the laws, who are carving out the privilege within the law for them to be able to be <clears throat> this kind of person. I, I think so. I mean, that's just me going out on a limb here. Um, you know, this was a, the, the, these are societies are. In, in one way distinctly hierarchical and so of course power is concentrated in certain areas of society um and actually being able to to legislate for want of a better word and to be able to control um, access to 
certain you know, spheres of influence within society. I think that's absolutely within would be within one of these you know these groups' self interest to do, yeah. for sure. Um. So I was having a conversation with one of our previous guests, and he's very interested in military history, and um. And this is what prompted me to like ask you again about your Band of Brothers article, uh, because as I was reading the, the, the your, your new book, um, and there were some parts in there about kind of the leftover fumes of the Roman Empire and the way that the Romans fought and men maybe during the migration period or Vendel would have you know been part of that and then coming back and at least as I'm understanding what you you wrote and that there would be a, a sense of what it meant to be a warrior or a soldier that was influenced by what was going on in the Roman world um, and so the person I was talking to he he's like okay trying to figure out again what we're talking about here like what is a viking warrior how much kind of standardization is there or is this just really kind of an ad hoc affair um you know he talks about like this kind of bring your own gear mentality where it's you know going to be guys who show up with a, a nice sword and other people who show up with less nice things because that's just what their family possesses or whatever and and i said you know i wonder if reading, you know, what, what you and Neil wrote, if there isn't more of a level of, you know, sophistication um, than that, that, that we have not sort of thought about previously. Um, and he's like, well, I don't know what that looks like then. How do you translate the Roman Empire into Scandinavia? It's like, who's leading Who's leading the march? Is there standardized uniforms? Is there, is there weaponry that somebody's actually providing that maybe is, is consistent somewhat in quality for each man who gets to have it? Or do you know what I mean? So like, can you speak to that a little bit about what, what, what your feelings are about that? I mean, of course, we have to separate here. We're talking about many centuries removed in the Viking Age, of course. Um, you know, we're going back several hundred years. Um, but yeah, I mean, during the during the late Roman period in particular, it does seem that people are traveling south. Basically, they're fighting, they're going south to fight as mercenaries um, in, in, you know, under the eagles, as it were, you know, for the, for the empire. Um, and actually, I mean, we, we, there's a, a very exciting site on Gotland that my, my colleagues have just uh, excavated and might have even been last year or the year before, um, a place called Butler. And there they found an amazing burial uh, of, a, of a male. Um, and he's wearing, well, he, he's accompanied by these beautiful spurs and also... Uh, a fantastic Roman cavalry sword. Um, we assume it's, it, well, we, we don't know where the sword is actually made, but it looks for all intensive purposes in its decoration. It's 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 a Roman cavalry sword. Um, and I think, you know, this this person, uh, this, this individual kind of embodies that movement of people heading south. Um, I think the kind of the mentality that we have in the Viking Age, of course, that that is, is, is um, there's a continuity there. I think if you're traveling south, you know, you're going overseas, you're engaging in these kind of great deeds, as it were, and you're coming back, you know, likely well-equipped with various kinds of riches. I mean, uh, of course, that's uh, um, that that's going to be something that, you know, really, you know, elevates, elevates a person in society. In terms of how military organization 
functions though i i think we're looking we're looking at two different not two different things but you know i mean it, it, i don't i think we'd be we will be unwise to compare what's happening you know in, in the late roman period with, with what we're seeing in the viking age um and actually i mean the nature of military organization during the viking age itself is um it's another of these massive concepts that needs to be unboxed i, I don't think we really have a full grasp on it yet um and of course, it depends, you know, when you're talking about in the Viking Age. You know, we starting in the, the late 8th century, you know, with uh, um, the raids into the North Sea, or indeed, uh, you know, what we're seeing now, and perhaps in the Baltic with the Salma finds. Okay. Um, that's very different to what we're seeing in the 9th century with these huge fleets, you know, traversing north, south, east, west, across, across Europe. Um, and then again, you know, moving into the later Viking Age, where we do have something that looks a lot more centralized, and we have the large fleets, you know, coming to England, taking, uh, you know, taking uh, the Danegeld from uh, from the English. Um, so, and I think you know, the, all of these these different, if you want to call them phases of Viking activity, I don't really like that. But you know, for, for to make it simple for this conversation, in that sense, I think we need to look at these all on their own terms. Yeah. Um, because of course the, the different factors that might be influencing the ways in which these these groups are, are working they are varying quite wildly I think um, and you know the the period that obviously interests me is the ninth century when we have these these huge fleets and um, you know what those are I think is is a is a really interesting question in itself because you know how do you how do you go in the late eighth century from from bands of, of raiders that might be, you know, let's just say half a dozen ships to something that by the mid 9th century, we're not talking a very long time, but we're talking, and if we're to believe the sources, which of course you must take them critically, but we're then looking at dozens of ships acting in, you know, in, acting, you know, in a coordinated manner. Um, yeah, there's, there's got to be two very different, different modes of, of organization or Perhaps you know a kind of uh, uh, well, as 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 I like to say in my articles. I mean, what I think we're looking at here is kind of just a it's it's a, a much larger network of actors working together uh, to form those huge fleets. Um, but actually, how they're interacting, you know, with each other and how they're interacting with the cultures around them, I think that's is certainly something that we need to need to put a lot more attention on. To be honest. Um, the, yeah, I, I definitely want to get into that too, because you've written a lot about that as far as, you know, what, what maybe previously had been seen as just kind of, you know, military encampments, but now look like much more, and, and it's the archeology, span right. That is, is, is opening this up, right. It, the, especially in England where you're writing about that so much stuff getting dug up that is suggesting that these were just basically like immigrant communities almost, right? Right? Men, women, yeah. and children, not just soldiers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. I mean, uh, I I mean, really, we're looking at kind of mobile societies. I mean, they're, they're sort of large enough to be in themselves. I mean, several thousand people at least. Um, the transient communities. Um, so, of course, you know, it kind of going back to kind of you know talking about warriorhood of what was a warrior and what were their functions you know within this context i mean that's just one tiny piece of the puzzle um understanding what those fleets are you've got to take into account you know the roles of non-combatants the roles of 
families, the roles of, of, of what my my colleagues in, in, in the UK have been demonstrating, you know, that the presence of merchants and artisans and uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they are, they're, I mean, they're, they're in, in themselves, we can see this in the archaeological record, they're, they're also entities that are changing in themselves over time, over the course of years, you know, as uh, they're taking in, you know, I think we can be fairly confident to say they're taking in new members from outside, not just from Scandinavia, but from the very societies that they're engaging in violence with, but also engaging in peaceful interaction, diplomacy and trade. Um, yeah, they're, they're uh, uh, <laughs> a very special type of group, I think. And it's not one I, I don't think, you know, I've, I've done I do a lot of cross-cultural research and we don't see this kind of group often. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go as far as to say they're historically unique, but they're, they're certainly... It's certainly different to what comes before and what comes after. So it's pretty fluid. It's fairly, you know, it's at least to me what you're describing is something that's it, it it's it's adaptable, it's flexible, it's moving and shifting as it needs to. Um, you know, and and so this this thing that's kind of in motion uh inherently, and then to me, like what comes to mind is like, okay, then what is the end game, you know, as far as you can tell? I mean, what what is the purpose of them? Is it is it assimilation? Is it just you know new land to settle on? I mean, what what is the point of it? I mean, actually, I think I think you also hit on something there. Um, I think this is kind of part of the the central aspect of of the ways groups operate, and it's flexibility. And I think that goes for talking about if you want to call it military organization throughout much of the Viking Age. These groups are very adaptable, um, but in in terms of these these you know these kind of large raiding fleets, I, I would hesitate to try and apply a unified explanation for them. I don't think they're all doing what they're doing for the same reasons. I think that's something we also need to be acutely aware of. But, you know, it's apparent even just reading the historical sources, and at least some of them are looking to settle land. So again, it's kind of, it brings this idea of a, of a society on the move. They're not coming just to raid and take plunder and go away again. They are at least, and, and at least groups within these fleas are actively looking for places to settle. Um, and I think that plays a huge role actually in determining their composition and the way they act. Um, because as we, you know, as we know, they're, they're often, these are small conglomerations that come together and they split apart. And, you know, in one year we see two fleets merge and the next year they'll split off and go off in three different directions. Um, they're incredibly independent. Um, and, you know, kind of, uh, and I guess another thing that makes them so fascinating because these kind of independent groups do manage to act in a coordinated and strategic way. Um, which actually I, I think kind of runs contra to what many people would associate yeah. Vikings with, you know? I mean, these are, that we, we, we perceive them as barbarians, you know, the barbarians at the gates coming to raid and pillage the much more civilized uh, societies of Christian Europe, right? But, but no, I mean, they're, they are, they're, they're clearly um, able to act in very sophisticated ways. And, and it's shown in nothing more about the fact that actually very often, I mean, they are able to outfight, they're able to confound their opponents, um, which again, I think speaks a lot to uh, their adaptability and flexibility uh, in the field. That brings up an interesting question for me, because you, you, you mentioned there are groups that we can say, or that we think ex explicitly we're looking for places to settle. 
But if we go back in history, like uh, the example that comes to mind first is like Boudicca, for example. The Romans, you know, when they fought Boudicca and they said the supply line for their army was full of women and children and carts and supplies. And so bringing the entire community to war is is somewhat of a, a, a common feature that we see in societies, you know, moving through Roman times and after. So, you know, as you're researching this, how do you parse out the people who are bringing women and children supplies, et cetera, just as part of the, the uh, just as a feature of their military organization versus those who actually have an intent to colonize? I, that, that must be hard to parse out, right? Um, so I wonder how you guys would would figure out what the what the clues would be that would say okay these these people were going to settle these people just brought everybody along because that's just part of their military organization and then they're, they're all going to go home that's a really good question actually um that's a really good question i think actually also and it's partly maybe driven by our own again our preconceptions about how warfare or violence was conducted during the viking age again we often think about very short-term raiding you know hit and run attacks um which is you know how we tend to characterize early viking raiding though whether that that's really how it was i i think uh is, is a bit of a question now um, claire downham in the uk has done some really interesting work showing showing that you know there may have been groups camping in england for at least you know short amounts of time you know actually way before the mid 9th century um but yeah, I think we tend to, to to preconceive Viking warfare as being something that was very rapid, and so they wouldn't bring with them these kinds of people normally. And you know, you're traveling by ship; your carrying capacity is is very much limited um, by the size of the vessels. Um, so I think actually the fact that with these larger fleets, we're seeing that in the first place implies that they they don't have an, any intention of going home anytime soon. Um, and again, that would, you know, that that makes them uh, uh, slightly different to what we see before and, and afterwards. Um, but it is a good question. I, you know, at Torxy, for example, in England, one of the, the now famous kind of sites of a Viking encampment, the, the Great Army, uh, my colleagues, uh, Julian Richards and, and Dawn Hadley have, you know, during their investigations of the site, for example, uh, identified agricultural equipment. And so why would one of these armies on the move have agricultural equipment? I mean, and I think maybe you know, that that's the kind of thing that speaks to this desire to not to literally settle and farm the land. Um, if you're bringing this stuff with you, I mean, that's, it's, it's, you know, you don't, you don't tend to want to bring dead weight with you in these kind of situations, right? I would assume, I don't know. I would assume. So I think it's, uh, it, it's things like that, which, um, which show this, um intent but of course again the other thing to bear in mind is that these are adaptable and flexible groups perhaps when they originally um you know enter and you know leave scandinavia they enter europe and into the historical record i mean we don't know what their intentions are um perhaps they had you know perhaps they themselves they themselves were experimenting you know we're, we're going to take a fleet and we're going to try this for we're gonna we're going to go and try our luck for a certain number of years. And let's see if if we you know if something comes out of it or not. Um, yeah, that kind of speaks to that whole you know what started the Viking Age and one of the one of the frameworks is just you know it's the uh, just they had the boats so they used them 
<laughs> right? So it's that it speaks to that experimentation, like, oh, well, we have all these boats. Now what? Uh, well, let's let's take them abroad, and then with no maybe like clear idea, like they're just like let's throw the uh, Viking spaghetti against the against the lap strikes, right? <laughs> and actually, I, I I think that's another thing to think about. Actually, I mean the fact that you know you if you're building ships, you're building them for a reason. Actually, um, there's such an incredible investment in labor and resources. Um, you know, it's just something we're only now just starting to get to grips with. You know, my colleagues who who uh, do work on this kind of thing is just you know trying to quantify what you need to build a single Viking age ship, and then times that by two dozen, three dozen. So actually, I mean, you do maybe have to have some pretty serious intent to use those things. Um, you know, given of course, I mean, they 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 don't have the the longest lifespan. You know. Um, so if you're building these things, you, I, I think they are intending to use them. Um, but then again, that does imply that there there must be some long-term plan here for at least some of these groups. And and actually, I think one of the that would be one of the questions we might never really figure out the answer to is you know why are they doing this? You know, it's it's a very basic question. Where are these groups coming from? Who are they? And why are they doing this? Um, yeah. It's one of those annoying, annoying questions I would really dearly love to love to answer. <laughs> I'm just wondering when you talk about, you know, going from, say, the late you know, eighth century, you know, to what you said, you know, maybe a dozen or something or half a dozen. And then also, I mean, the, the blooming between, you know, then and say the mid late ninth century is extraordinary. And to me, it almost um I mean, given what you were just saying about what, what we now know about how much it takes resources, you know, human and natural and otherwise to, to build these ships and get all of this together and just the logistics of just doing this, you know, it's just insane. But it also the ramping up to me on some level kind of speaks to like a gold rush mentality of sorts, like like so that what is it that they're rushing toward then, you know what I mean? And then like, how is the word getting back of like, ah, build ships, build more ships. We got to get out there. There's like treasure do you know what i mean it's like oh that's it and it's, it's kind of actually actually a shout out you know to, to my colleague morton raven who you know working in Roskilde, or actually did do this kind of quantitative study of what you need to build a ship i mean it's just oh, yeah. i don't have a head for those kind of numbers actually my my mind starts to you know melt when when you think about just how what what scale of resources and labor you would need to even make one of these things but um, but yeah, and, and then as you say, I mean, we do see something of a proliferation. There must be a proliferation in, in the building of these vessels. Um, and again, what is driving that? I, I think, and again, I would hesitate to kind of try and have a unified theory about this. I think we can see in the historical record that at least some of these groups are, you know, are led by maybe political exiles. So actually maybe they're being in a way pushed out. Mm. Scandinavia due to civil wars or internal strife but yeah I mean it it could also just be a case of you know for another group they've, they've seen the potential benefits to be gained from this activity uh, and it's worth the risk it's worth that investment right and it's and it's, uh you know and it's a it's a hell of an investment to make given those risks you know you've got to assume you'll even make it across the sea and survive to where you want to get to in the first place Exactly. I mean, I think it's so, um, I often think of this, especially you know, as a historian, you're reading these texts, whether they're primary or secondary, and it's just, 
words on the page, you know, and it's like, rarely you just kind of go oh you know and you and and then there were more ships or whatever right oh and then they settled in england for a while or and you're like okay fine you know you sort of move on in your reading and if it, it, there's just not this moment of just like really sitting there and like trying to i have to say it for me too i mean i tend to have a very literal way of thinking about things you know and so I wanted to sort of sit there for a while and think, okay, if I had to get up in the morning, go get all the resources to do this thing and then do it. And then, you know what I mean? It's just the time consuming nature of just putting any of this together. I mean, it's unbelievably mind blowing to me. I mean, one what of the things are, Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say, what if the entire Viking age is just the, the, the product of a positive feedback loop? Right. So they invent sometime in the middle of the eighth century, somebody figures out how to put down a keel. They take they have one or two ships, and then one of them goes to England, makes a killing at Linda's farm, grabs a bunch of silver, or maybe, you know, the, uh, there's also the they went to the port of Portland before that. I think the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle talks about. But anyway, so one of them goes out there, makes a killing, comes back, everybody else sees it and goes, Well, we now we need a ship. And so then they start committing tremendous resources. And now when I was uh uh Last time I was in France, the uh, Musée de Nantes at the Chateau had the the traveling Swedish National Museum display. And they had a whole section on the resources that it takes to make a boat and showed how much acreage you needed to raise the sheep, to then have the wool, to make the sail. And so then by 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 reorganizing the economy to make to make just a few ships, then you're alienating a whole subset of the population who then has to leave on the other ships in search of other resources and then it just and then and that's why we see bigger and bigger and bigger fleets because it just starts it's this positive feedback loop where they just commit more and more resources just to building the ships and then they and then the reason they're raiding abroad is to get enough resources to go home and build more ships Actually, I was just in Roskilde a couple of weeks ago. And so, I mean, you won't be able to you know, see this. The light is not good. But anyway, just what you mentioned, Ben, that your colleague uh, says, for a long ship of 30 meters, the following is required. And so, and for all you Americans out there, we're talking about roughly 90 to 100 feet long. Um, four oak trees for the keel, fore stem, and after stem. 14 oak trees for planks. Two oak trees for the keelson and mast fish. 250 pieces of crooked oak for the frames, three ash trees for the top strake with oar holes, two pine trees for the mast and yard, 35 pine trees for oars, 10 willow trees for 1,000 tree nails, 10 lime slash spruce slash pine trees for shields, 8,000 iron rivets, 6,000 liters of tar, 112 meters square sail canvas of linen, and 2,000 meters of hemp rope. <laughs> you don't turn that around in like a couple of days. That's insane. Who's footing the bill for all of this? And and Franks. how are they <laughs> 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 Also, I mean, how are you organizing collectively to, to do this? And, and actually, I mean, this is, this is whoever was wanting to listen to us talk about warriors and violence, right? I mean, we are talking about. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I never thought I'd actually get excited about woodland management, but um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, all of these things are entwined. You know, I mean, th th these are the the parts of the motor 
right? The, the, if we want to call, if that's what raiding is, I mean, or, or violence or warfare is, I mean, none of this can happen without this. And and I think it's something we've not been good enough at doing is we we try and treat all of these aspects of the Viking Age as separate things. Of course, academic specialization from our perspective comes into that, but but we really need to work to make the connections between these things. Um, because otherwise it is just, you know, to be removed of that context, I don't think actually we can start to get to grips with even the basic questions of what is happening, you know, in you know, in, in the Viking Age outside of Scandinavia, as it were, in Europe. We, we can't get to grips with those questions unless we understand what on earth is happening, happening back home, as it were. Yeah, and whether the community at large is just being put to task by the chieftain or the guy in charge, who's the guy who's putting forth, you know, like I just said, footing the bill, right? So then is he like cracking the whip and everybody's kind of, you know, I mean, we do know that there's enslaved people who are you know, going to be involved in putting a lot of this together, probably. Um, but it does sort of, you know, for me also kind of bring to mind the question of, you know, how much community support is there, you know, like men, women and children are all like, you know, doing what they can in order to help build the ship or to, you know, raise the sheep to make the sale or whatever, because they're being promised at some point it's going to benefit all of them. Or is this just an endeavor that is about, you know, padding the pockets and ego of the guy who's in charge? Uh, because he can do it and it translates into political and economic power. Like... No, no, I mean, this is it, isn't it? I mean, I was just actually trying to mentally kind of work some of this in my head just while you were speaking there. Um, but I mean, of course, it, this is such a, you know, such a massive endeavor. And I think we really do need to think about that. You know, how, and so we do, in a way, come back. To, to not just military organization, but social organization is, you know, how does the, the social structure facilitate this? Because it has to. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think and some, some of my colleagues have suggested before when we've been sitting around chatting, I mean, the kind of, you know, we, we're looking at a rural society. These are subsistence farmers for the most part. But, I mean, we have these kind of, you know, more, for want of a better word, urbanized spaces um, and actually, you know, maybe are they the, the kind of places where this power is being concentrated and where the resources can be concentrated to allow this kind of thing to happen, which I think is an interesting suggestion. Um, but of course, for me, you know, with my interest in social inequality as well and, and, and enslavement, I mean, the, the levels of coercion there is something I also would love to try and try and figure out. Um, but again, you know, we as soon as we move into Scandinavia, we're dealing with prehistory, right? Uh, we don't have that really useful fallback that we have, uh, you know, on the continent and in in England, you know, with the with the texts uh, to try and understand just how these groups are organizing or how these societies are organizing. Um, I think it's one of the great, really, you know, big questions we still need to address, for sure. Okay, well, so then let's bring it around to because you mentioned coercion, and I'm, you know, in my mind, coercion probably is going to involve a level of violence on, at some point, right? Potentially. So, um, and you know, because you've seen it, like you know, we 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 interviewed Bleshik a few months ago, and you know, we talked about violence and warrior societies and you know and cj mentioned i think rightly so you know it's like throughout history you talk about martialized societies you don't find any that don't have violence present it's just part of it right and 
Um, and and yet, as you saw, because I know you've seen the clip, uh, Ben, that, you know, I mean, Lester had paused and said, well, you know, when we look at the burial record, you know, we don't see a lot of evidence for rampant violence. And I mean, and he wasn't saying, you know, there's no violence at all in the Viking age, but he, he did suggest that there was more sort of material evidence for peace than violence. And so I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, what you've seen in, in the, in the record. I think, and I hate to, to be this guy. I mean, uh, I always said when I started studying, I would never be someone who talks about terminology. And that's just what I spend half my life talking about now. <laughs> I think part of the problem is, well, actually, no, I would say, one, I, I, I've never, I've never really come across an argument that Scandinavia was this war-torn hellhole, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not fields and forests on fire everywhere. I mean, that that's, that's, you know, I don't think anyone's ever said that, that there's these kind of, you know, unprecedented levels of violence across Scandinavia. Um, or if they have, I've just forgotten. Um, I think actually what, what, what comes into play here is what we mean by a peaceful society. I mean, is, is peace an absence of violence? Or is it, and going back to our, you know, question about warriors, right? Or is it people being able to control levels of violence and who exactly gets to enact that violence and when. Um, latent violence, the potential for violence. I mean, we live in a violent world today. You know, uh, our societies are violent in their structures. You know, uh, we, we see that on a daily basis. But of course, we're not living in, in war-torn landscapes here. You know, Scandinavia and in the US, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think we need to be really careful about making these kinds of statements, these kinds of assumptions. And I absolutely get where Leisure comes from um, in this, because, of course, I mean, evidence for what we might call direct violence, interpersonal violence. Yeah, I mean, that's for a, a period that is renowned for violence. Yeah, I mean, one might be surprised. It seems lacking. Um, and I know Leisure kind of went through all the caveats in that clip. You know, of course, you know, there are you, you can have violent encounters that don't ever leave traces on bone and that kind of thing, of course. Um, but I see where he's coming from. But I I mean, I, I one of the questions I, I'm looking at in my, in my social inequality study is who gets a burial in the Viking Age? And actually, you would assume, given the associations of violence and status, people who participate in violence did get burials, proper burials, formal burials. Um, but we, of course, as, as archaeologists, what we focus on is inhumation burials because you have preserved bone material or bet, much better preserved bone material. And of course, that's the minority burial, right? Throughout the Viking Age. You know, there's, however, <laughs> I, I don't know if we, you know, to quantify, you know, what was the percentage of inhumation versus cremation burials during the Viking Age, but cremation was by far the predominant, right? Um, so I think it's quite hard to make these kind of general assertions when so much of the population is invisible to us. Um, and that's, you know, those are the folks who got the burials. I, I'm not convinced that a lot of people in the Viking Age got a burial, uh, a formal one anyway. So I do think we have to be, and it's very unhelpful of me to say all of this because what it means is that we end up with a, a question with no answer. But I'm <laughs> someone who spends more time theorizing and not actually dealing with archaeology um i think it's important to take to, to acknowledge that viewpoint um i think we do have to be careful about these kind of broad conclusions that we draw 
And I think actually deconstructing what we mean by peace or war, warfare during the Viking Age, I think that's an interesting exercise in itself. Because again, like I said, what is peace? Is it merely an absence of violence? Um, yeah, I don't know if that's very helpful to think about in terms of this podcast, but you know. Well, I think um, one of the things that, you know, and as I was like kind of reading, you know, your your book, and, and I mean, as a historian, I know this anyway, you know, it's a bit, the historiography changes, right? And and this this is the subject of violence, you know, brought that to mind for me, where um, how violent we think the Vikings are depends on who's looking at the Vikings <laughs> and when in time. So could could you maybe just like explain a little bit about that and how, you know, that has changed over time and then particularly what happened say after the World War II era where scholars were not really interested in looking at Vikings and violence for very, you know, specific reasons and you know this whole idea of just sort of how we come up with I would say like the Vikings don't change but who looks at them does. So, um, you know, how how has that sort of played into this whole idea of how violent we think those people were? I really like that, actually. They don't change at all. <laughs> it's, it's us that do the changing, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, all of these discussions, like the ones we're having, are massively impacted on prevailing views in academia and in research. Um, so, of course, I mean, if you go back to the, you know, the year 19th and early 20th century, the focus of of archaeology was, was very much on, you know, kind of its... Uh, the, you know, the, these magnificent finds from you know Gokstad and Osterberg, these massive Viking ships, you know, real symbols of kind of this this Nordic cultural identity that was emerging during the Viking Age. And part of that was this going overseas, uh, conquering, raiding. You know, it's all the kind of things that um you know in, in an era of imperialism you want to hear about. Um, and that really was the kind of the the dominant view. And and of course in in England, you know, I mean for us the vikings have always been that that enemy that you know was 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 crushed by you know alfred of wessex alfred the great it's the becomes the foundation you know for the emergence of the english state it's born in violence born in bloodshed um but of course going into the uh you know the 1930s the viking age you know takes on a, a slightly darker image you know of course it was you know we have imagery being misused um or abused by the, the third reich um you know using um you know this kind of glorification of violence you know we see that in in the imagery from the propaganda from from the the war years and of course after you know what what happened you know those terrible events um there was a general move in in anthropology and archaeology to 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 shut you know, to, to let, let let's not talk about conflict um, because you know I mean what we had been what we what what people have been focusing on previously was this very kind of very small aspect of society the violence you know, the glorified violence and actually I mean the obvious point being that you know the the Viking Age is a time of you know great cultural achievements if we you know look at it from an archaeological perspective you know these are you know, societies producing, you know, you know, sophisticated societies producing beautiful artworks, and you know, um, it it was a kind of there was a mood to kind of pacify the Viking Age in that sense, and of course this was fueled further by kind of post-war reconstruction, um, 
in the late 20th century you had excavations such as copper you know the, the um in in york in york um uh, where we found you know these kind of tenement blocks in the viking age where we had people producing clothing producing jewelry and of course that's a, again a very different side to the viking age that people had heard about um but this kind of just it just continued to persist and and i I get the feeling there's a you know there's this kind of perspective that to talk about violence would be to glorify it again, and that's not where anyone wanted to go. Um, and you get into the very end of the twentieth century, uh, and violence is kind of gone from discussions of the Viking Age. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, been become a, a thoroughly pacified period. But it's really since then I think that we've, as a scholarly community, the academic community, has started to kind of not 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 take the pendulum and swing it the other way but actually i like to just think have a more balanced view a more realistic view of what the past was and that was a time as i said just like today you know where violence was part of society it was part of people's daily lives um but without that kind of glorified edge that had been applied to it before and of course as, as we've been talking about here how i mean martial organization martial society violence warfare actually this is all filters into many other aspects of daily life even the ones that we would call peaceful. Uh, and I think that's, I'd like to think that's where we're at now. Actually, we're at a much, a much more, you know, um, we have a much more clear-eyed perspective on life in the distant past. Um, so that filtering, I think, is interesting. And maybe I would ask you to, like, expand on that a little bit, because I do say that with my students when I talk about violence in, you know, not just the Viking Age, but like the Middle Ages in, in, in period, right, where it's just a different level of, of life living. Um, and even if it's, it's not outright like warfare or that kind of interpersonal violence, but, you know, for most people in, in Western culture, so like, you know, UK or Scandinavia or the United States, unless we're like hunters, you know, which is not that many people really, I mean, nobody is even really familiar with the, the, the violence that it takes to kill another living thing in order to eat it right you know and so things like that that to me would be just in the category of just kind of daily living violence um that those people that was just you know another day of the week right where we we don't feel that anymore we don't we're not exposed to that so much so is that what you're kind of getting at is how violence sort of filters into these other areas of just daily life Oh, I mean, I think absolutely that's one one aspect of it. I mean, and of course, this is a period where, you know, people had the the legal right to carry weaponry, you know, if they could afford it <laughs> and they were of a certain social status. So, I mean, people would have been exposed to the paraphernalia of war. Um, these are societies, arguably, you know, they, well, as many do, they glorify, you know, um, deeds conducted during times of warfare you know this is what you would go and hear about spoken at the hall during the feast um so so i mean there, there was that kind of very uh i think kind of a closeness there as you know as you say violence is part of daily life um and actually i think there's something we we can't necessarily appreciate today as you say apart from unless you directly engage in these um you know, these kind of activities yourself or you've served in a in a military in a military somewhere i mean you you can't appreciate that i i wouldn't ever pretend to let's put it that way mm -hmm. um and so i think actually it makes it very you know i think there's something again we need to have in the well not in the back of our minds perhaps at the forefront of our minds when we talk about this because that is also part of talking about this responsibly right is it, recognizing that um you know 
and, and I think I think as I say, where we're at now in terms of the discipline in in archaeology, I think we do, you know, for the most part, we tend to talk about these things responsibly. Um, you know, I think it's, it would be it wouldn't be a you know a good idea to shy away from discussions of violence, as unpleasant as it is, um, but at the same time, not to place too much emphasis on it. Uh, you know, it's it it is an, an unfortunate aspect of of life. You know. Yeah, again, I sort of like really sort of parsing that, you know, the line between who they were and who we want them to be, right? You know. <laughs> I, and I absolutely agree. I, I I gave a talk a couple what, a week before last, uh, and actually that's what I said at the end, you know, it was on on the subject of these raiding fleets. I mean, let's be honest, we, we all kind of love this stereotype. We really do, you know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's a, but it's 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 one that I mean, I think we we do have to. I think now we are, you know, we we rec we can actually. I think we are at a place where we can really separate that the kind of the the Viking in popular culture doing all of these these you know daring and violent things that we it makes for great TV. Um, and on the other end of that kind of you know the realism of daily life in the period. Um, as well, my violence plays a, does play a key part, I think. But it's it's you know, there's a control. It's control, as I, as I said. You know, it's uh, violence is is written into law, but it's also controlled by law, as it is in 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 our societies today. Yeah, I wonder how much of our our view of violence in the past is skewed by our desire, modern desire, to be more evolved. But all around us is evidence that we are quite the opposite that we are more, we have a higher capacity for violence today than perhaps we might have before. And just to clarify what I mean by that, you know, in the Viking age, a young budding warrior couldn't walk into a crowded school with an automatic weapon and kill 30 people. Just wasn't possible, right? And we have tools at our disposal today that, that give us the ability to be far more destructive than anyone could have imagined you know, back in the Viking age. And so perhaps, by, you know, when we look back and we say, oh, they're always at war, they're always fighting. But if you look at the scale of it, it's really unremarkable. Uh, and how, and and also, you know, when I was, one of my other favorite, you know, periods of time is like 100 years war. And when you realize that they weren't actually killing each other, you know, the, you know in chivalry, you didn't, you didn't, your goal wasn't to kill the other knight, it was to uh, capture him and ransom him back to his household. It was a money-making endeavor. And so, yes, prowess and martial ability was very valued, but not not in the capacity. Today, it's always about killing. And in our culture, you know, with movies and everything, I mean, the, just the vi the violence. And then and now we have, you know, look at the most popular movie of the last month, right? Uh, Oppenheimer, right? It's, <laughs> it's about the nuclear bomb, where now we have the ability to snuff out you know, a hundred thousand lives in, in the blink of an eye. And it's, it's terrifying. And I wonder if that part of why we fixate on the violence of the past is to try and almost make them, you know, it, it, I think the Romans did this to a certain extent, you know, they, they called the Celts barbarians and they tried to make them out to be these, these violent brutes that, you know, with a mark, with a martial society, quite similar to how historians in the 19th century uh, look at the Viking or looked at the Viking age, I would, I would argue. Uh, but then you see what the Romans were doing and they were organizing in a capacity that was far above and beyond what the Celts could have ever done. And in fact, they, they wiped out the Celts as a result. Right. So I, I'm just wondering how much like 
of our perception. It's it's almost like we're trying to wash our hands of how bad we are today. And I say that with the caveat of there is that that study that came out recently that showed that, you know, historically speaking, we are in the most peaceful time in human history based on this estimate that like we're, you know, fewer men are dying at a young age, whatever, from from violent acts and so forth. And and um uh so there's there is that caveat, right? Uh but still we have this capacity. I mean we're we're we we do kind of sit what what are we at? We're at the last we're the we're at the 57th minute of the last hour on the doomsday clock for nuclear yeah. annihilation. <laughs> so yes, we are we are the you know, fewer, but I mean, fewer young men are dying as a result of, of, and this was compared to hunter gatherers, by the way, because it's hard to quantify that in later periods, right? So this, so compared to hunter gatherers, we're better, but we're also like, so close on the doomsday clock that are we really that much better? Yeah, <laughs> we're willing to just light the whole thing on fire. Anyway, that's, that's my rant. But I just wonder how much of that is skewing our perception. And then maybe that's where academia is trying to pull out of that for a while is just say like, you know, um, kind of maybe ignore it until we could kind of resolve our own personal issues in the modern age to have a clearer lens on what was going on back then, right? Mm, I mean, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I see where you're coming from. I can't get into the heads of academics 50 years ago, I'm afraid. Um, but I think actually it's, in a way, that's where we have come to, where we we, we are now in a place, certainly where we can look at this in a more clear-eyed way. Um, but of course, I mean, you're, you're hitting on things on some universal truths there as well, right? You know, we, we do have the capacity, any society to be violent, you know, groups within society to be violent. Um, and of course, you know, that's, that's what, uh, you know, the, the chroniclers of the you know, early medieval period in Europe focused on, you know, these bands showing up on, you know, on, on, in, on English shores or in, on the, on the Frankish coast. And they're all about, you know, they, they came here and they raided, you know, they raided Nantes and then they raided Paris. And it, the focus there is in, almost entirely on these kind of, you know, acts of wanton violence. Again, they belie the kind of the strategy and the complexity and the the logic behind these acts. Um, but that is how you, you, uh, you know, you frame your enemy. It's how you dehumanize them. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's, uh, you know, I think that's certainly something that's going on there. Um, another interesting thing about the Viking Age, though, of course, in, in Scandinavia, I mean, this is a period of, you know, at least, you know, we have the Christianization period where, you know, kind of societies become much more closely modeled on Europe. So actually we see a kind of a, a conversion of the barbarians at the same time, right, into a much more kind of civilized society, as it were, depending on one's view. Um but of course, I mean that you know the, that doesn't do anything to curb levels of violence in Scandinavia. I mean, the, you have the in Norway the civil war period you know, in you know a couple of hundred years after the Viking Age, which is uh, you know it's it's it isn't that is a town a time of you know kind of fairly profound regular violence and probably on a level that actually we don't necessarily see in the Viking Age. Um, I would hesitate to actually try and quantify that, but you know based on based on the the sources that we have. I mean, I think what we're looking at in the Viking Age is kind of, for the most part, a small-scale violence in small places. We don't have, they don't have, you know, there, there isn't these kind of, there's one, not the population to sustain massively high levels of violence. Um, but it's also, 
it's quite targeted, I think. It's not, and also I think we get, you know, our conceptions of, of warfare today, we talk about something often approaching total war, right? Where the entirety of society is engaged in this as a collective endeavor. And I, that's not what we're seeing during this period, you know, not during even the medieval period. Uh, we don't necessarily see this kind of entire mobilization of society towards a common objective of waging war. Uh, I think that does color our view as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. That was one of the most eye-opening discussions that we had uh, in, on the podcast with Dr. Matthew Panessi, who st studies ninth or 8th and 9th century monasticism. And one of the first things he said to us was, I have spent an, an, an entire career ignoring the Vikings. Frankish monasticism as, in particular. Frankish monasticism. <laughs> and he was able to, because what? when we were, and, and this was where I had to reevaluate my focus on the Viking age because I get kind of pigeonholed, right? So I think, well, the Vikings did, you know, Lindisfarne, Iona, Nomutia, and then they hit, you know, um, Dorstad. And, and we think why, like these were these big calamitous events that, you know, because from a modern lens, you know, like you get 9-11, which is coming up here soon, you know, the anniversary of, but 9-11 and we, and then it's all over the news. And that's all we talk about. We're hyper-focused on that when we live in the most peaceful age ever, right? Like it's, and so the, 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 the perception of violence, whereas for the other monasteries who weren't attacked, which was the vast majority, the, the Vikings were a non-issue, right? And I, I, when he was talking about that, it just realized I was like, huh, that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah both of our heads are like exploded at that point. <laughs> like wait the whole reason we're talking to you is because you specialize in frankish monasteries <laughs> in the ninth century and you're telling us you don't you weren't aware of the viking threat it's like what <laughs> <laughs> or that it's a not not just not aware but like just it's a non-issue <laughs> ignore it yeah well and he also you know brought like ben you were mentioning earlier about just sort of um you know, intent, right? And and he was saying that, you know, when he was looking at the the record and, you know, and he very much admitted, right, that the Vikings are not his his area, the, the monasteries are, but that, you know, looking at the the recorded evidence of it, um, that, that, that he didn't think that they actually were targeted per se, or at least not all the time, that especially in the monastic institutions in Francia, which tended to be more urban, that the monasteries were just there and were sort of collateral damage because the, the Vikings were kind of coming in and maybe just hitting whatever they could. Uh, and, you know, I, and actually that was probably one of the first times I'd kind of thought of it in that way as well when he said it, you know, because we're just so used to this narrative of these intentional attacks on these monasteries. That that made sense to me too, because in 813, I believe it was the island of Wuhan, right next to Nomuchi that was attacked. And there's no monastery there, but they targeted that island specifically, which had a, a rich, you know, trading port that fed into the entire Bay of Biscay. So it's it, it so the this idea that the the monasteries were were explicitly targeted was more a feature of the remoteness of them rather than the type of institution that they were. Uh, because villages, remote villages were also targeted if they had a certain uh, amount of wealth and a certain amount of, of um, uh, you know, remoteness. Is that a word, remoteness? Oh, we're good. <laughs> I'm the writer of the group, and here I am. I, I have no idea how to speak. <laughs> um, I do want to ask, um, when we were talking about sort of the changes in the historiography and stuff, um, and so some of the new projects that you're going into and a lot of the research that you've been involved in, and 
then you know some of the newer material evidence coming out of you know some of these places particularly in England as far as you know like the size of these or whatever I'm just kind of wondering if we're uh, academically we're at a moment with the Vikings where we're just kind of tweaking a narrative or are we like entering into some territory where we're finding stuff where it's like oh my god we've been like entirely wrong about this for like 200 years or something I wouldn't I I would say actually more we're we're starting to actually I think find good evidence to confirm some things we probably all thought of for quite a while um I mean the kind of the revelations we're getting out of the camps these these so-called winter camps I mean you know that they do show that these groups for example are very large and that that had been in itself a subject of debate during the late 20th century how big was a Viking fleet you had the kind of obviously the poles of opinion there you know some people would argue they were a couple of hundred people at most while others would say it's, it's several thousands and actually i mean i think where we're leaning towards now is that that latter that these are very large groups and that's that is exciting to see that i mean because that does open up the kind of things we have <laughs> touched upon uh maybe not as much as we should you know kind of the nature of these groups and what they are and what they want um but also it's kind of, you know, we, we we are starting to learn, I think, how these groups operated from a, a tactical and strategic perspective, which is a fairly niche area of interest for many people. But I, I think, again, it what it shows us is, you know, these groups are pursuing intentional strategies. And I think the kind of the, the comment there about the monasteries as well, we had this idea, we have had this idea. It's a very commonly held idea um, that you know that this this kind of these attacks are ideologically driven, or they were targeting monasteries because you know, they wanted to target the church. When actually, I mean, these groups are much more pragmatic. I think you know it's, that's where you're going to find food. That's where you're going to find wine. You know, it's where you're going to find all kinds of goods that you can sell. Or well, if you're planning on staying in the field for months or years at a time, that's how you're going to live. Yeah. You're going to live off these these sites. Um, so I think that's what we're starting to find out is that these it sounds it kind of sounds kind of stupid to say it out loud that these are rational people pursuing rational aims and very you know very practical goals um, and they are doing so very successfully for the most part. I mean you can't keep a group of thousand you know even a thousand people in the field for any length of time unless you're doing it well. You know yeah. it's the kind of you know if if you're not if you're not preparing if you're not constantly preparing. Um, for what comes next, I mean, you know, it's not going to end well for you. Um, so again, I think what we're losing is this kind of this idea of a haphazard, you know, haphazardness of Viking raiding. And I think that that's a really, for me anyway, I think that's one of the most interesting things to be coming out of a lot of this research. Um, because that means we can start to study these groups on their own terms and not on the terms of the chroniclers, right? And, and I think that's, for me, that's really exciting. Um and of course, a lot of it is theoretical. I don't think we'll get hard evidence to answer a lot of the questions we have, but we can start to think. Um, and with that comes more questions. And of course, if we don't keep creating questions, we don't have jobs. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's what we need. <laughs> well, and, and I just, I do, uh, I, I, uh, I picked up your book and I, I actually, I happened to open it randomly to the page that I wanted, which was, um, it was meant to be, but I did want to quote, just, I think this speaks to what you were talking about. 
in here as to, you know, we have these large groups that are moving around. It's hard to know what exactly they want. And just to to emphasize kind of the, the task that you have ahead, I think you, you put it really well here in this paragraph. Uh, and this has to do with the Vikings in Francia. Uh, it was not long before escalating raids forced the Carolingians to adopt a policy of granting fiefdoms to Danish princes, presumably exiles, major landowners, and power players from the emerging polities of southern Scandinavia in an effort to prevent incursions into the interior. In return for their lands, the Scandinavian warlords were tasked with protecting the coast from further Viking attacks. Uh, and skipping forward, occasionally it worked. One Scandinavian leader named Hemming, for example, is recorded as being killed while defending Wallachrin in 837, but most often it failed miserably as the gamekeeper Vikings merely invited, invited in more of their countrymen working from the security of a fixed base. And so that speaks to, there were some that said, sure, I'll take this land, I'll become one of you and I'll defend. And then there's others that say, yeah, I'll take this land and then use it against you. And so it just shows that the 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 motives are from one group to another appear to be completely different. Uh, so we're not really talking about, like to your point earlier, one one you know homogeneous group. It's a, it's a, it is just, a, it is a scattered kind of, mixture of people with different motives it's it you know it's it's interesting because in my mind I, I you know when i think of successful groups in history they're highly organized and they all have the same purpose whereas the vikings were exceptionally successful i would argue because i mean we're talking about them now that's incredible uh and, but they were just a complete scattered you know this group that could and, you know how they were able to do that i mean i really look forward to seeing what what you guys come up with in your research because it's uh really gets to the core of what this is all about right sure i mean that question of uh is it making sound very dry collective action i think it's a really interesting one i mean um and this is a you know i have a this is actually a side <laughs> a sideline of my research that i'm currently starting to build as well with some of my colleagues um located in the states you know how, how kind of these small scale groups are able to come together and do this and what's more i mean as we see in that as you just read, CJ, I mean, they're competing with centralized kingdoms. And they're not just competing them, they're they're outwitting them. And, you know, you can see if you add a bit of kind of drama to these very dry historical narratives, but you can see that, you know, people are scrambling to contain this threat. Um, and I think that, again, you know, I mean, what we're seeing here, so, you know, are, are these the unsophisticated heathen savages you know we've been reading about for so long no i mean they are they are they're able you know in relatively small numbers to to confound and outplay their opponents and of course, of course we shouldn't put too much on this very you know in very other many cases they are not they are defeated in battle or you know they are run down in the countryside and destroyed but at the same time the very fact that they are competing almost on like, as it were, you know, on a level playing field, able to do that. I think it speaks volumes um, to the sophistication of their of their organization. Um, and of course, I think it's it's partly because the way that they conduct themselves. I mean, again, a subject I never thought I'd really ever get that interested in diplomacy, right? All of these things you're talking about, that necessitates recurrent, regular interaction with the people who are your enemies or your prey in some cases. Um, and again, that's not something we, we've tended to account for in, in narratives of Viking Age warfare. I mean, constant communication across across these boundaries. Um, 
you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just as complex as any kind of, you know, political intrigue you, know, you, you would read about, you know, in, in fiction or in, in, in the historical record. Um, you know, the way that these groups are playing each other off against, you know, their opponents, their opponents trying to play Viking groups off against each other. It's, it's, a, it's such a complex tapestry of interaction. And again, it's something we, we, we need to pull apart, I think, and look at the, you know, even in just the one of the case studies you mentioned there, you know, who was involved in this and what does this kind of, you know, what does this particular historic episode, what was involved in that in terms of which groups were involved and how did they interact with, with each other? Um, and that's something, again, it's a theoretical question, but I think it's something we can we can start to now think about because we do have that archaeological evidence um, that shows us how these groups are starting to operate. So yeah, you know, this is this is we might have to come back and do this again in three years' time or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does bring to mind actually just a couple of things. I mean, for one thing, uh, CJ, like what you were mentioning earlier about the the knights, you know, later kind of in the more sh chivalrous era, um, and the ransoming and stuff like that. I mean, for for most average ordinary people who are you know kind of all you know interested in Vikings, they do like the idea of the sort of you know axe wielding sword, what you know, who just the killer, the killing machine right and don't even recognize the fact that we know that they did ransoming as well right i mean so again it's like you're saying ben is sort of part of that that sort of diplomatic sort of conversation where they're trying to achieve a certain end and you know not always you know being violent is is definitely part of it but it um reminds me of a one of my assigned readings for my students and it's an article that was written gosh like maybe in the 90s by a medievalist historian guy halsell and he and it's i mean it's 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 great and and i even think on his own blog he's kind of been public about maybe rethinking some of it in later years but i still assign it because the title of it is playing by whose rules question mark a further look at viking atrocity in the ninth century and it is this whole idea of, you know, the, the the cultural divide, particularly because, you know, at this point, you know, the, the Scandinavians are not Christian really yet. Um, and yet a lot of the people that they are, you know, perpetuating violence upon are Christian. And so there's that that cultural problem there where they're just like you said earlier, Ben, they're looked at as, you know, sort of this heathen menace, you know, and that's a big part of why they're the menace, because they're this unpredictable other because they don't play by the same rule book. And I think that says it just speaks volumes to me about what was going on then. Mm -hmm. No, no, absolutely. I mean, I to and of course, I mean, as you said, I mean, we can qualify this in various ways, but it does seem just, you know, based on the kind of the results that they're able to get that they are, you know, at least initially, they are acting in ways that are um that are not necessarily not 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 well understood, but maybe, you know, that they, they are they are different to how, you know, the kingdoms of Europe are used to waging war. Um and actually, I mean, but you do see this. I mean, actually, with this very kind of example of granting, you know, granting land to prominent leaders, uh, the same. I think it's, we shouldn't understate actually the capacity of their opponents, these kingdoms, to adapt themselves. And they clearly are trying different strategies to contain these threats. You had the, you know, the the building of the bridges on the on some of the Frankish rivers, and this is something that we actually may see, according to the documentary uh, evidence in England, at a much earlier uh, phase. Um, and you know, not all of these strategies work. Uh, you know, 
these, these Viking groups simply they go around the bridges or you know, they go somewhere else and raid somewhere else because the opportunity is suddenly, you know, it's become less um, you know, attractive to them. Um, so I think, that, again, and that's a way we've got to think of. So it's actually not even just the Viking way, as it were, of making war. It's actually the entire geopolitical map in Europe. It's just become so fluid and flexible. Um, and again, to me, that's what makes this such an interesting period because that, that map is being reshaped. And I think, you know, the these Viking groups have not necessarily been given enough credit in their role in, in precipitating those changes. But, uh, you know, we are, we are seeing a kind of, you know, a fairly dramatic rupture in the way that things are being done. Um, and that is partially, I mean, of course, we, we can't put too much emphasis on it, but it's partially due to that Viking threat. Um, but again, you know, is it, what this has necessitated, and it's only, you know, perhaps in the last the last couple of decades that we are now in a place to move beyond the restrictions of those sources, which we all rely on. I use them all the time myself. But you know, but they are we have you know we do recognize, of course, that they are restrictive, um, and we are now, I think, in a place to start exploring some of these <laughs> questions that, again, I never would have thought ten years ago would be interesting to me, but they are, you know. Um, how do you how do you map diplomatic negotiations between a, a Viking fleet and the Frankish kings? You know, how do you how do you theorize what's involved in that? Um, and each one of those is a huge question. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I think yeah, we're starting to get there. Especially you know, you know the work also you know my colleague Chris Coyman, who I mentioned to you earlier before we came on. Um, you know, really really trying to kind of dive deep into the nature of that of what is taking place in various parts of europe for sure it, it gets uh the on the diplomacy piece it gets weirder than just bro, you know diplomacy between the vikings and the and the kings or whatever you know there, there's that there's an example from the uh the annals of saint burton where uh hasting who is actually the main character in my historical fiction novels just shows up in the 860s brokering a truce between the bretons and the franks and you're like what? <laughs> like, how did you do that? that? I mean, the 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 progression of Viking activities in France. So, uh, now, my I, I focus in that area of France, right, which is now La Vendée in southern Brittany, right, and and some of the things that you see that are just you, you have to scratch your head because obviously we, the main narrative that's that's touted by or has been touted by historians for at least the last you know century just has been missing a a critical component because it, the th like for example, in 853, there was a, a royal charter given to to Scandinavians on the Isle of B the island of Bitya, which is a river island right next to Nalt. So eight years, no, a little more, uh, nine years after. Wait, 853. Sorry, eleven years after they sacked Nalt. <laughs> there we go. I'll get it right. You know, eleven years later, you know, now they're they're welcome tradespeople with. A foothold in like how does that happen and what are we missing to, in the main narrative that is not including this really interesting movement inward you know i love the, sto the story of you know when when they did sack not and then the um i think it was the the annals of not that talk about the vesfaldingi they called them you know men from vesfold and i always say you know the only reason a chronicler would have had that word is because he would have you know it, they would have had contact with these people before or as i like to say they introduced themselves hello <laughs> 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 my name is v uh, vaidar i am vesfaldingi and i'm and actually in my book in my third book i do that i i talk i talk about 
because they they take they sack not and then there's a little there's a little like not a choir boy but like a little a kid that and they don't want to they don't actually want to kill him like in my books i don't make them these ruthless murderers right uh, well sometimes they are but they <laughs> but that's that's just it is the the my, the main character actually speaks enough of their language to be able to communicate with him. And basically he's all about like, I just want everybody to know that I did this. So he's like, you know, tell them that it was, you know, and so the kid asks, you know, who are you? And then one of his guys goes, well, or where are you from? And one of his guys just says, well, I'm from Vestfold and that's it. And then the kid runs away. And then he, my character's just like, darn it, Bjarki, I was going to tell me. <laughs> but, but there's like a, I feel like there is a, there is a, a, a pretty critical component to all of this that is still that still eludes us because the activities don't match the fundamental narrative that we that we tell in most of the in most of the books that that are out there and so forth and i i think there's still so much that's what makes this topic so interesting is there's just still so much mystery and so much to uncover yeah for sure and i mean again i think partly what you're getting that there is is we need to stop treating all of these aspects of Viking activity is somehow discreet and independent. You know, yeah. it, it, how did how you know, this group that raids Lindisfarne, how do they know where Lindisfarne is? You know, you're, you're pretty lucky to show up on the coast and find that place. Maybe, you know, the likelihood, I believe, is that they've been there before and they've been there to trade and they showed up one day, they were recognized, they were known, they didn't want to trade. And you know, we wonder how they, how these Viking fleets pick their targets because they've probably been there before. Yeah. They've been there wearing a different hat. Um, and again, it just speaks to this kind of the complexity and the the fluidity of these 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 peaceful and violent interactions going on in Europe. And those go hand in hand. Um, I think that's absolutely how we we should be looking at this now. Yeah, in, in 2017, I, I went to Lindisfarne. I, I uh, did a roundtable at the uh, Medieval Congress in Leeds. And so while I was there, I did a Viking tour of Northern England. And we, in visiting Lindisfarne, my dad was along for the ride. Now, my dad's very French with a Tom Selleck mustache. He's he's a pretty outrageous character. But anyway, he's, he's driving us around Northern England. And we get to Lindisfarne, and I didn't know this, but there is a submergible road. And so you have to wait for the tide. And he looks at me because the island that my family's from, Normoutier, which has the Saint-Philbert, which was raided in 799, so just a couple of years later, has a submergible road and is inaccessible at high tide. And so my dad just looks at me, he goes, those Vikings knew what they were doing. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at my dad, too, because he's like, because we saw the submergible road. I was like, don't tell anybody I made this mistake. <laughs> and then we went to a little restaurant on the right next to there and had the best fish, fish and chips I've ever had. And my dad, who's in the seafood industry, asked the waitress and he's like, where do you where did you get this fish? It's delicious. And she's like, oh, my my, you know, my cousin, you know, so and so he's he, and he was on his boat fishing right there. <laughs> so we knew it was very fresh. But it's it's this idea that, yes, they, there was there was intent at the beginning and they knew what they were doing and they must have had pre, prior contacts and visits because not only did they arrive at very similar targets early on, but they arrived at the right time. Right, because with the Saint Philbert, the tide was high, so the monks couldn't leave on boats. Right, so there, it's it's this uh, this curious, you know. So there's yeah, there's more to it to the story than we actually, than we actually know. And that's what gets me excited because it's like, oh yeah, and how can I tell this story? I enjoy it. 
yeah, we'll, we'll all be doing this forever. Ben, you've yeah. got a lifelong uh, endeavor ahead of you. I could teach Viking history based on the uh, demand for it until I'm 100 years old. <laughs> you know, Viking, you can just keep writing your book, CJ. It's just like this Viking wave is never going to crest. <laughs> so, well, we should probably maybe wrap it up here. Be mindful of time a little bit got an hour and a half so yeah there's real quick let's uh plug the the new book so the vikings this is co-authored with neil price the man who uh uh was the historical advisor what on the northmen right that's correct and yeah. also the yep so you're working with him on your new he's he's part of the new project right no, 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 but he works no. just down here in Uppsala. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah. projects. Neil's got his own projects. He's working <laughs> on. <laughs> well, you are colleagues and you co-wrote this new book, which is a, a an introductory primer. So this is the original intent for this is for public mass consumption or more of like a textbook for for people starting out with the Viking Age. Reading through it's it's uh, I, for me, I feel like it would be a good primer for somebody who just has never even you know, started looking at this topic and it's just a great uh, starting point to launch from. Um, Try to cover several bases with it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> As an educator, I'm very happy with the, the pricing. You know, textbooks are like off the charts expensive, at least here in the States. And, uh, and so you can get this uh, paperback version for like $34. So I'm happy with that. Also, libraries can get a hold of it for streaming online access as well. So that's very good because it's accessible. So, um, but yeah, thank you so much again for doing this. I so we we so appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been a uh, the time has just flown by. Actually, this has been really good fun. <laughs> <laughs>